This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. And today on the show, I really wanted to learn more about something that we all hear about in the news. It's a chemical that's used in agriculture. It goes by the name of Roundup, but a lot of people know it as glyphosate. So there was recently an article published online that was kind of a hit piece on glyphosate and those who use it. And so I wanted to interview an expert on glyphosate, tell us the science behind it, and really kind of tell us about, you know, why we should not be afraid because the scientific consensus is that glyphosate is safe. It is actually um, more safe than bacon and wine, even though we don't blink an eye at either of those two things. So on the show today, we are interviewing um, past guest and friend of the show, Dr. Kevin Falta from the University of Florida. So Dr. Folta is going to tell us about his background, why he is someone that we should definitely listen to when it comes to glyphosate and we shouldn't listen to, you know, incendiary journalists just trying to get their name out there. And also kind of the the breakdown of the study that is mentioned in this article where it kind of talks about a CDC study links, um, I think 80% of urine samples in the U.S. had trace amounts of glyphosate. And actually, Dr. Folta is going to tell us why that's actually a good thing. And so this was super fun chatting with Dr. Folta, catching up and just learning about all things glyphosate. This is one of those hot button issues where, you know, everybody has an opinion on it, whether they're in agriculture or not. And so I think when it comes to issues like this, we really need to pay attention who we are getting our information from, um, whether they're scientists or journalists. We just need to make sure that the information is accurate and it's being explained correctly and very well, which... Dr. Folta does a great job kind of articulating the science and explaining everything behind it. And of course, I'm going to link in the description Dr. Folta's response article as well as his podcast, Talking Biotech. So 
Um, I really hope you enjoy this podcast episode. It was super fun chatting with Dr. Folta again. And we had a quick little snafu with our recording software. So you'll notice kind of two different um, audio qualities. We're on Zencaster, then we hopped over to Zoom. But still, we had a phenomenal chat. So hope you enjoy it. And thanks so much for listening. Well, Dr. Kevin Folta, welcome back to the podcast, man. How are you doing? Hey, really nice. Good to see you again. Yeah. So we were talking earlier, we we chatted about, I think about two years ago with your, talked about your background, GMOs, all that good stuff, um, the Matoke banana. So quick, quickly, just kind of tell us what have you been up since then for the past two years? You've probably been a little bit busy. Well, it's always really busy. Everything is always, uh, you know, going from one emergency to the next. But for me, it's, you know, COVID brought some interesting challenges of how you teach differently. Uh, it brought in challenges mm-hmm. to research. It brought in challenges to everything. And I did get to spend some concentrated time at home. Uh, my wife's a farmer, so I got to do a lot of infrastructure work kind of on my own schedule. That was pretty cool. So it was uh, it was still a busy time, but uh, but all good. That's awesome. Yeah, I follow you on Twitter. So it's really cool to kind of see you go through, you know, everything on the farm. And it's fun seeing your updates on how your farm is doing it. Y'all have chickens? I mean, haven't you tweeted about that so far? Or what all livestock yeah. do you guys have? Uh, we do chickens for eggs. We do ducks for meat and eggs, turkeys for Thanksgiving. Um, we have geese, which are sold as pets. So they're these very ornate Sebastopol geese. And then we do cooney cooney pigs, which are a kind of pig that is uh, mostly domestic pet type pigs, but some people eat them. Uh, that's, a, that's our livestock. Well, there you go. So how much land do y'all have for chickens? Because we live here in the suburbs in Panama City, and we really want to get backyard chickens. There's no ordinance or anything. So that I'm always trying to ask people, like, what advice would you have for like backyard chickens? Well, the big thing for backyard chickens is their security because you've got everything from raccoons mm. to snakes to, uh, you know, wolves and foxes and things, wolves, uh, coyotes and foxes that want to uh, <laughs> get at them. And, um, and you have to have layers of protection. So whether it's uh, mm. first a good coop, then an electric fence, poultry fence around that. And then if you got a dog who can hang around you, everything in layers and layers, right? With chickens. And uh, so the, the best, that's the best advice. And if you get a couple of really good laying breeds, the different breeds, different types of chickens, all have different capacities for their disposition, for the number of eggs they make, and for the size of the eggs, colors of eggs, but also for their, um, what they say, broodiness, that how much they're going to defend their eggs against mm-hmm. you. <laughs> so getting uh, getting some uh, a good good a good breed that will um, uh, that will work with you and give you what you want. That's most important. That's not bad. Yeah, I still need to do some research. I need to find some chickens that are good against ornery neighbors because we have some some neighbors on a couple of sides of our houses that one wouldn't mind chickens. The other would definitely mind the chicken. So we got to, you know, try to figure that out. I mean, unfortunately, our houses are closed. So, well, well, but if you have a good if a rooster is going to be the problem, right, because they make all the noise. Um, some people find it uh, in, endearing. Oh, yeah, true. I, I, I freaking love waking up to the roosters. But at the same time, if you uh, they're also the <laughs> ones that people complain about. Yeah, that's true. That that, that I, I don't think we would get a rooster. I do like the sound of waking up to a rooster, the, you know, the good natural alarm clock. It's kind of cool. You feel like you're, I don't know, kind of one with nature, kind of out in the out in the country. It's not bad. Kind of a good way to start the day. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I love it. Um, being out in the country, it's a, we have uh, roosters. We wake up every morning, the roosters and dogs and wouldn't have it any other way. All right. Yeah. All right. This is a little bit better. This sounds better already. 
Yeah, it's, you know, there's something weird. I, I live out in the country, so that, that <laughs> bandwidth issue is a big deal sometimes. I mean, I don't know. It also might be all these people wanting to cancel you. I mean, I've been seeing your Twitter. Anytime you come out with the scientific <laughs> facts, it seems like people come out of the woodworks like, oh, Kevin Folta, he's still getting paid by Monsanto and all this crap. So. Oh, yeah. Be sure we be sure we talk <laughs> about that a little bit because it's kind of fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to make a note of that. We talk about that in a little bit. Um, so, yeah, we were talking earlier. We talked a couple of years ago about GMOs, your background and stuff like that. And I really want to talk to you today about glyphosate and this huge hit piece that came out about it. But to our listeners, kind of tell us your background and why you are somebody that we should listen to and we should trust when it comes to glyphosate and the scientific literacy that comes to research studies about glyphosate. Well, I'm a molecular biologist by training. So what I do is I understand what is the genetic nuts and bolts, what are the genetic nuts and bolts that underlie uh, the way everything in biology ticks? How does DNA work? Uh, what are the other molecules that are used in the expression of, of DNA? And that's been my main focus. I'm also very interested in physiology and plants. And so this is a makes a really interesting kind of perfect storm to talk about genetic engineering and glyphosate. Um, when I get, learn about molecular biology, we learned everything from prokaryotic molecular biology, so bacteria, all the way up through human cancer. And my degree was in molecular biology, not plants. And so I have a good background in all these topics. So then when I started to specialize in plants, you learn a lot about genetic engineering and what it is and what it isn't. And one of the big amendments that you make to plants when you genetically engineer them is resistance to the herbicide glyphosate. And so I've been studying this for a really long time and not just what, how the genetic engineering works, but also how glyphosate works and it's relative risk. And I think I probably have read every paper on glyphosate that's out there um, over in a scholarly paper. I have immersed myself in the literature against it. I have immersed myself in the discussions against it. So it's been a really, uh, I, I, have, I maintain a very good understanding of how the science works, but also how people push back against the science. And I've been in public uh, university space for uh, 20 years uh, in, in, as a professor, much longer than that as a student and postdoc. And uh, I did have funding from Bayer for a year for my laboratory, um, but that was uh, one year to fund a postdoc in uh, 2017 and uh, didn't even cover her whole salary. So, um, you know, that's my background with respect towards glyphosate. Oh, and we use it all the time on the farm. So I understand what it is and how to use it safely. Yeah, I mean, not only do you use it, but you also have conducted a lot of research on it. So, I mean, I feel like anytime anybody on social media, whether it's this report or another one, they come out with a claim that says, oh, glyphosate is linked to cancer. And that's their only claim. They don't have any scientific research to back that up. And then you come out and you have all of this research that shows, actually, no, here's what the research says. And then usually nine times out of 10, their quote or their, their comeback is, oh, well, you're just paid by Bayer. No, you're paid like, no, that's, that's not it. And so it's very funny to watch you like give them legitimate scientific critique of their claims. And they're just like, no, I don't want to listen to it. Well, that's the word, right? Is listen. And they don't want to listen to me, but I'll listen to them. And if they can give me a good argument for the points that I made in my article, 
I'm, I'm more than happy to adjust and I'm more than happy to have those conversations. But when you, when you criticize when you, someone's work, when they try to deceive the public and you say, there's where they're just spreading fear, uncertainty and doubt. It looks kind of, kind of shady. Here's how we really need to think about this. They can't argue with me on the science. Mm. So what they do is they say, well, he is paid by Monsanto or he is a loser or he is this or he does this or, you know, he and and they try to take out the person. It's the oldest trick in the book. And uh, it's very telling because most people understand that. So. Let's kind of talk about this article first before we dive into um, your response article, which also was like very, very well done. Um, so this initial article came out and the title was very clickbaity. It said glyphosate, a.k.a. Roundup, linked to cancer, found in 80 percent of urine samples in the United States. And then the article is like very I don't, it, it, it cherry picked information and was, and was basically saying, oh, this is a bad thing. Like we're ingesting glyphosate. It's in high levels of our urine. Like this can't be healthy. So tell us about kind of the issues you had with that study in particular or, or with that report. Yeah. So Trevor, if you think about it right off the top, you know, how many in, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, internet ecosystem, in the news ecosystem, how many articles do you click on the title and read through thoroughly? versus just kind of skim titles until you find something where you really want to know more, right? There's so much information out there. And it's no surprise that this author, Carrie Gillum, she very strategically um, says, well, if I could put together the most scary headline I can, it's going to be glyphosate um, linked to cancer found in 80% of urine. And so this is this is a really important point is that if you can get that clickbait headline up there or not even clickbait, the, the um, uh, you know, just the parsing through the headlines bait to try to just get people to put that in the back of their mind and seed the uncertainty. Now you've accomplished your mission, even without even uh, having people read one word of the article. So this is where the deception begins. As you go through this article, a couple of things pop out. The first thing is when someone says it's linked, what does that mean? And linked, if you're a scientist, it means linked to cancer means you have an epidemiological uh, reason to believe there's an association that's strong, or you can show molecularly that when you add this compound, this happens, this happens, this happens, and you get cancer or see evidence of genetic changes consistent with cancer. You see some sort of a popcorn trail between the compound in question and either the outcome as a population or the outcome in the Petri dish. You don't really see that with glyphosate. And the linkage is, well, the um, uh, courts have found, you know, a jury of 12 laymen um, said that, that it causes it or that it at least is responsible for it. So these linkages are extremely tenuous and not real, yet using the word linked makes people think that there's a real strong connection when there's not. And that's really just the first of many deceptions. Yeah. And then you go on in kind of your rebuttal, you were talking about how the claim is that they found 200 parts per trillion. <laughs> um, and then uh, what did you say the time frame, or not the time frame, but kind of the time 
um, analogy of that was like, what's kind of, how, how small is that 200 parts per trillion? 200 parts per trillion is three minutes or just over three minutes in just under 32,000 years. <laughs> so that's like almost next to zero. Yes. It's just that we're really good at detecting this compound. And if anything, this outcome, and we should mention where these data come from. They came from a study by the CDC, who for some reason that we don't know, was looking for glyphosate in urine. And they tested urine from 2,310 individuals and uh, from six years old and up and found uh, glyphosate, detectable glyphosate, in something like 1,800 of them. So 80%, good number. that They detected it in there. But if you're coming to a conclusion, is detecting and they didn't say how much was there. They just said plus minus, you know, that it was either there or it wasn't. And further, if you look further into this, you could find that the highest they detected was 1.4 parts per billion or 1.4 seconds in 32 years. So still a very small amount, the highest. So if anything, the numbers from this report say, we live in amazingly safe times. And this stuff is, is if it's present at all, is barely detectable. And if we can detect it, it's in the urine. It's outside the body. It's where you want something that's a chemical. You want it out of the body. The body can get rid of it. So not only is it something that's not really there, it's also not where it matters. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, that's true. I mean, you're, you're literally peeing it out. So that shows that your body is filtering it out and getting it out of your system. So it's not staying there. Like you eat the food that might have it on it and then it's going to leave your body and that's end of it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's these tiny little residues that are typically in processed foods. So the glyphosate is applied to uh, corn and soy, um, sometimes to wheat as a desiccant, but genetically engineered corn and soy. And Sometimes you can get a little bit that follows through. It's sprayed on crops early in their development, so early in the year, to kill the weeds, leave the crop standing. So the crop is genetically engineered to resist it. And we can talk about how that works if you like later. The bottom line is, is that you generate corn, which then is made in the high fructose corn syrup, corn starch, corn solids, all the corn stuff that comes from a corn plant. And those ingredients go into things like triscuits and whatever. Uh, you know, any kind of processed food. So if you go out of the middle of the grocery aisles and you just stay on the edge of the grocery store, you'll never find glyphosate. It's not sprayed on carrots and papayas and things like that, even though that's what even Aaron Brockovich says. Um, it's not true. It's only on like the corn and soy and those tiny little residual amounts and parts per billion, so seconds in 32 years, may be there and um, are quickly removed from the body in stools and urine, 95% leaves in stools and urine, and 5% is metabolized by the liver through a specific enzyme in the liver with a half-life of about, uh, about 14 hours. So this stuff is, is transient in the body. It doesn't, there's no evidence that does anything while it's in there. Um, it just moves right through you, which is exactly what you want an herbicide to do. So, you know, kind of going off of the food, you mentioned that the food this is sprayed on things like corn, soy, wheat, stuff like that to, to kind of play devil's advocate. I mean, a lot of people claim that glyphosate is causing more and more cancers. But would you say that, like, let's say, for example, that I don't know, our food intake is maybe causing an increase in cancer. Would you say 
it would probably be this increase in processed food that we're eating that people are associating to glyphosate. Would you think that there might be something there? Well, that, that's a, it's a good thought, and a, a testable hypothesis, because we do know that certain cancers like colorectal cancer do have committed steps that are due to, there can at least be ascribed somewhat to dietary risk factors. But things in diet, um, nitrosamines are, no, are notorious, carcinogens in the diet, um, alcohol. Um, there's uh, other things that are very strong carcinogens that are known carcinogens that we consume. Uh, acrylamide that comes through frying things like potatoes and even uh, your coffee uh, has a trace amounts of acrylamide. But they're very, very small amounts. Risk is very, very low. And, uh, you know, enjoy your coffee, enjoy a beer, and just understand that risk comes from exposure. And just the mm. tiny little bit that we're exposed to probably doesn't have much of an impact. And, and glyphosate, it's never been shown to cause cancer, period. At least, you know, this far, everything we've seen, you know, and that may change tomorrow. But so far, 40 years of regulation, 40 years, thousands of studies, no one has shown that link. Now, let's talk about your rebuttal a little bit on, um, I'll link it in the description for this episode. It was on the Genetic Literacy Project website. And um, in there, you kind of break down the study and everything. And you also have some really cool diagrams about different regulatory um, agencies in there how they approve glyphosate and what they rank it as. And I thought this was super interesting. Um, the World Health Organization, the International Agency for Research on Cancer. So they said, I'm reading it right now. Um, it says glyphosate along with group 2A, probably carcinogenic to humans, along with red meat, hot beverages, and working as a barber. And even things like bacon, Salted fish and wine are things that are actually worse than glyphosate, which nobody bats an eye at. And so, I mean, I thought that was really interesting reading all of that. And so kind of, I don't know, like what was the whole process like of writing this rebuttal and trying to set the record straight on glyphosate? Well, it really is about our perception of risk. Mm -hmm. So here they're trying to say, here's the, something that is cancer linked. Um, at 200 parts per trillion, yet something like an, a glass of wine. So, so <laughs> they, they claim that glyphosate problematic at uh, 200 parts per trillion. Um, alcohol or ethanol, known carcinogen, so not a probable carcinogen, a known carcinogen, a glass of wine has 13 or no, 130 billion parts per trillion. <laughs> of a known carcinogen. So, it, and I understand one of them you willingly put there, the other one you don't, and that certainly plays into it. But the, the, at least in human psychology, but the relative risk is exceedingly minuscule compared to the risks we take, such as drinking a glass of wine or even worse, riding in a car. So the, um, uh, it's just about putting risk in perspective and it's this heightened sense of risk from agricultural products that Gillum and the Guardian really do exploit. Mm. And, you know, I think that's a really good point. Like with wine, that's something that you are willingly putting in your body. And then glyphosate isn't something you're willingly putting in your body because, I mean, the farmers are using that. And so I think that there is also a really big button issue where people are like, well, I want to control what goes into my body. It's like, well, OK, you can do that. But if you're not going to farm and grow your own food. There's going to be stuff like this where we are literally, we have the safest, most abundant food supply in the world, 
thanks to tools like glyphosate and it helps us feed you. It helps us feed everyone. And so I think that's a really hot button issue that really kind of, I don't know, hits home with a lot of people. No, very well said. And, and, you know, to be honest, if you, you're saying 80% of people, you could detect glyphosate, but if you had a better detector, which probably will be here in a few years, Mm. you'll detect it in hundred percent because you can detect things that are almost not there. You know, the ocean is vast. Yet if I had a drone here in Florida, where I live out in Archer, Florida, and I were to fly that drone over the Gulf of Mexico, I could detect a shark, but it doesn't mean that shark's a risk to me in Archer, Florida. It says it's there, but it's in the wrong place and there's not very many of them. And the chances of me getting together with that shark are extremely small and it poses no risk or next to no risk. It still poses a risk, but it's extremely small. So it, it is just a way of thinking about how we put risk in perspective. And so kind of moving on a little bit, one thing you mentioned here in your response and also in that first article is something called the dirty dozen, which you hear a lot about in terms of agriculture and who those corporations are. So what are the dirty dozen and what are they kind of accused of doing? Yeah, the dirty dozen just rips my soul out because it gets such (laughs) traction on the news every single year. And my interest is in how do we connect people with more fruits and vegetables? How do we get more fresh fruits and vegetables in the people? How do we help that benefit our farmers, especially in the state of Florida, where we grow horticultural crops like fruit and vegetables? You know, we don't grow, um, you know, corn and soy here. You know, we grow your oranges, your tomatoes, your peppers, your herbs, your grapes, you know, we good times, California too. And so we grow a lot of this stuff. And so it's really important that people eat it. The Environmental Working Group, they do a report every year where they take USDA data. Now, the USDA goes through all the crops and they say, here's how much stuff we find on the crops. We tested for this herbicide, we found this much. We We tested for this fungicide, we found this much. We tested for insecticide, we found this much. And what they show is that when they survey everything, food is remarkably safe that the amounts they find are way below the allowable daily thresholds and uh, maximum residual amounts, way below. And it tells us and reassures us that farmers are doing the right thing. They're working sustainably. They're using the minimal amounts to do the job and that the food is safe. But the environmental working group says, wait a minute, those numbers aren't zero. That's 200 parts per trillion. That's 200 parts per trillion more than I want. And that's what you're feeding your kids. And they'll say, okay, here's strawberries in 53 places in the United States. They found uh, seven, they found traces of 53 different chemicals. Um, They don't tell you that one of them was in um, Salinas, California. And one of them was in plant city, Florida. They'll just say, we found 53 giving the average person the idea that there's 53 different chemicals on their strawberry that their kid is eating. Mm. Uh, In reality, there might be one, might be two, and they're there in such small amounts. And when I go down to the farm here and we we eat strawberries downstate, I'll eat them right off the, right off the ground. I mean, I'll pick them off the plant and eat them. Uh, I know they've been sprayed, but I know what they're sprayed with and I know how often they're sprayed and how it breaks down in the environment. It doesn't bother me for a second. Yeah, it's so interesting just kind of see people's perceptions because they think people they think like farmers are out there drenching their crops and and whether it's glyphosate or any sort of uh, 
herbicide, pesticide or whatever. But it's so funny because I've watched people like Ag Aviation Ag Aviation Adventures. They're um, crop dusters in Minnesota, I believe. Mm-hmm. And basically they do a really good job of breaking down kind of how they um, divide up the chemicals. Like in one of their hoppers, it's the, the concentrated amount of Roundup is like the size of a Coke bottle. And then they pour that, they mix it with like hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water. And so it's not like you're just drenching hundreds of gallons of Roundup or pesticide on a crop. It's, I mean, meticulously designed to where you can only put just the right amount. So you're not spending more money. It's not going to harm the plant. It's not going to harm the people eating it. And so it's very interesting to see people like once you actually tell them that the rules the regulations and everything, they're like, oh, oh, that makes much more sense. I feel better about my food now. Absolutely. And, you know, no farmer wants to spend the money to apply a crop protection product, um, something like an insecticide or even, you know, herbicide, whatever. That stuff costs money and every single drop costs a fortune nowadays more than ever. And uh, if, if you're going to go treat a field, you make sure that you've got a problem to treat and you make sure that it's going to threaten your yields. You don't just do this to do it anymore. Uh, maybe back in the day, you would do prophylactic treatments and some crops maybe you still do, but things like agroclimate is a great computer resource where you go on agroclimate and ask if you're farming strawberries, for instance, you'll say, what are the odds based upon humidity and temperature that I am going to have a problem with botrytis on my strawberries? And if the weather conditions are conducive, they'll send you a little ping and say, hey, good idea to treat with this much of this today. Um, you know, use this many, it's much captain per acre um, to, uh, you know, treat for fung- fungus because the conditions are right. This has cut our use of farm inputs dramatically, probably 50 to 80%, depending on where you live. This is a big score for farmers and a big score for consumers. Yet the environmental working group and the dirty dozen will tell you that your food is contaminated and an awful mess. We should be celebrating agriculture, not working against it. Yeah, I mean, modern technology has done such amazing things where we can have technology, like you're saying, like agroclimate. I mean, people are still thinking that it's like when we spray DEET, I mean, decades ago, where, I mean, there was that huge issue. And then we don't, not not DEET, what was it? Um, DDT. DDT, yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, yeah. and that was a huge thing. But, I mean, we saw that those were, you know, harming bald eagle populations because of runoff. And then we stopped doing it and you can't spray that anywhere. And so we have much more safer chemicals now than we did back then. And it's, you know, I I say it all the time, but we have the safest, most abundant food supply. And I mean, even with things like food recalls, whether they have pesticides on them or something, we have that huge tool in place, the food supply chain, where if we find that as an issue, we can get those, that food back and we can issue a recall and ensure that consumers are going to be super duper safe. Yeah, exactly. And and the best part about this is that the you talk about DEET or DDT. DDT <laughs> I they got me doing it. Um, you never find your produce getting stung by mosquitoes. Um, years ago, when the DDT was a problem, they caught it right away and we stopped using it a few years later. Uh, its environmental persistence is a problem and taught us going forward that we better be careful about the things we spray and understand how they break down in the environment. And today's newest fungicides and, and herbicides are safer than ever. The old school stuff that's still kicking around, you know, 2,4-D, dicamba, that stuff, it all has its limitations and restrictions. You have to be a licensed applicator. You got to be able to use it in the right place at the right time, uh, special precautions around aqueous environments. 
there's so many restrictions. It's not funny. I'm a, a licensed applicator and it's amazing how careful in the records you need to keep. And there's not a farmer out there that wants to spray more. Yeah, that's, that's a very key thing too. I mean, all the records and all the tracking you have to do. I mean, every single time you spray any sort of chemical, you do anything on a farm, you've got to keep records of it because you can get audited and people are going to check and see what you're doing to make sure you're still producing a safe and viable product. No, exactly. And then, then, the, then the huge cost that's involved too. Uh, the cost of agricultural chemicals is about, I don't know about doubled, but gone up significantly in the last two years. And it's one of these things that is really punishing the larger farmers and their, their costs. The ones who bought uh, even fertilizer um, before the price increases were thrilled because it almost doubled overnight. And oh, I, so, I believe it. Yeah. So at a time right now, we're on a planet where food insecurity is going to grow, the, the conflict in Ukraine, the breakdown of supply chains, all of these things considered, we're going to see more scarcity and more food price increases. And it's the wrong time for activists to be targeting a chemical that is necessary to keep food mm. prices low and is safe. Yeah, that's a very good point. And, you know, kind of speaking of that, this is something I wanted to ask you. I I see a lot of parallels between glyphosate and the COVID vaccine, for example. I mean, with glyphosate, we have countless institutions that say glyphosate is safe. But there's a lot of people that say, no, I don't think it's safe. But then... I would say that those same people get the COVID vaccine and, and I have gotten, I'm not, I'm, I'm not anti-vax at all, but those people get the COVID vaccine, say it's safe and they cite the scientific literature saying why it's safe, but they don't want to cite the literature about glyphosate. So do you think there's like, I don't know, kind of a weird double standard there? Oh, huge. And it, and it breaks my heart because, you know, politically I'm a tough one to put in a box. I, I, I agree with stuff from both ends of the political spectrum to different degrees. But one of the things that I am definitely along the more left side is in environmentalism. And I'm really excited to um, see us do more progressive issues with the environment, especially around climate. And when the real champions for climate in Washington uh, that maybe lean a little hard to the left come out and say, well, now we got to ban glyphosate. You know, Cory mm -hmm. Booker, Booker is in that space. And now you've just taken someone who might be a champion for something important like climate. And now uh, basically said you hung a science denier sign around his neck about glyphosate. And how do you have it both ways? You've just disqualified him from having a meaningful conversation about climate because he doesn't, he's just demonstrated that he doesn't follow the scientific rules. Yeah. It's so weird. I've seen, I, I've seen like the opposite where people, they cite science, like scientific literature saying we're, we're not having climate change, but then they cite scientific literature talking about the vaccine and different stuff. So I'm like, we can't cherry pick our scientific data for certain topics just to back up our political beliefs. Like we've got to be thorough and we've got to be even like, we've got to cite all the science, not just what, I don't know, meets our preconceived notions. No, exactly right. And that's the problem today is that the internet provides us a direct route to find a definitive link or definitive um, source on whatever we believe the most. And so this is why you have people who claim the earth is flat and that we never landed on the moon and that Sasquatch is your neighbor is because there's somebody out there who will tell you that that's true. And here are some sources you can believe. And in the area of genetic engineering and, and glyphosate, some of the biggest, uh, I guess, joke facades 
are elaborate websites that look like they're institutions of higher learning. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to pull the wool over someone's eyes in the modern internet. So it's so important that people are good connoisseurs of information, that their uh, information literacy and understanding how to what is reliable information and how to process it. That's where we're at now. We're out of the age of information. We're, we're in the age of what's good information. And that's a tough nut to crack. So as somebody that's super active on Twitter and that is a great science communicator, like what would you say to somebody when they are finding information, scientific studies, what tips and tricks would you give them to help them figure out if it's trustworthy, if it's from a good institution, what would you, what, what would you tell them? Yeah, that's, it can be kind of tricky. So the first question is, is, is this in line with the scientific consensus? And if you go to national organizations like the National Academy of Sciences, the American Association for Advancement of Sciences, the, um, even the EPA and the USDA, if you're finding information that's contrary to them, why, why is it contrary and, and what's going on here? That's the first question. After, then, after that, then the question is, what are the interests of the folks who are giving me this information? And, and what have they talked about in the past? Because what you find is a lot of these anti-GMO, uh, anti-glyphosate organizations also are against vaccines and maybe even cell phones saying they cause problems. Um, you know, they, they may have a chemtrails website. Um, you start to examine the veracity of the claims and uh, the evidence they rely on, um, and, and it falls apart. Uh, the other important one is, what is the research I'm using to justify, or what, are, or what is the research that's being used to justify the scientific claim? And what you find is that they're usually review articles. Maybe they make it in peer-reviewed journals, but maybe kind of lousy ones. Mm. Um, the work by Stephanie Seneff is a great example. She has all these articles out there and will say, in my laboratory at MIT, we have done research. No, in her laboratory, which is Artificial Intelligence Lab, they did research, meaning a Google search, and this is what they determined. And she's made profound statements to uh, national leaders, to local ordinances, local municipalities about her research in autism, her research in vaccines, her research in glyphosate, her research in gut bacteria. She doesn't do that kind of like wet lab research. She reinterprets what she finds online and then writes these articles. And people cite them as primary research where they're not. Like they are the actual experiments and they're not. They're not experiments. So understand that. And if you see meta-analysis, which can be a very powerful technique to combine different sets of data into one cohesive outcome to test how all the experiments around a certain hypothesis relate to an outcome. You have to be really good at understanding what are they really comparing? Are they comparing apples to apples or apples to elephants? And what you find is in a lot of the crank literature, they are comparing apples to elephants. So it's not easy. And so you need to find the people who you trust who are good at deciphering this information. And and it takes some time to develop those relationships. It does take some time, but it's really fun when you find somebody that, I mean, clearly knows their stuff, but they're also very good at communicating that. Because I feel like there's a lot of people online and even, I mean, just the old school way where they know it, they just don't know how to communicate it. So it's great to find people like you or 
I don't know, like a Neil deGrasse Tyson that are really good communicators and good storytellers, and they can present you really high concept scientific principles and teach it to the layman. And so I think that's really, really key. Like kind of find those people, check their sources, check their data, check their research and all that good stuff. And, and like you said, you've got to know that a Google search is not a scientific study. Like that's not, (laughs) that's, I mean, yeah, yeah, obviously. No, you're exactly right. And and I think (laughs) even, you know, nothing wrong with Neil deGrasse Tyson, but if I send him an email, he's going to, he's not even going to look at it. Uh, you need to find people who are accessible to you. Who are the scientists you trust who you can send them a tweet and they'll respond? You know, what do you think of this article? What are its strengths? What are its limitations? What are the things that the author that you think are particularly good about the study? What are the things that maybe you think aren't so hot? If you can find people who you can contact like that, and I try to be that to a lot of people, but there's a lot of us that are out there, you can start to develop a network of people who uh, who are accessible and able to answer your questions in a public forum like Twitter, Facebook, mm-hmm. that's much better than an email, which really just is between two people. So reach out to folks who you can trust and then maybe reach out to some of the folks who you think have an opposing idea and ask them what they think. And then when you do that, I think you find two very different uh, types of answers. You find some that will come from scientists who uh, have read the literature and understand it and speak very carefully of its strengths and limitations. And when you talk to people in the other camp, they say, well, it's wrong because it, the company's trying to kill us all and poison us. And anyone who says so is a shill for Monsanto. <laughs> very clear who is telling you the truth. Oh, a hundred percent. And I mean, obviously, and you experience this a lot. I mean, the moment the personal insults come out, you can pretty much tell that they're not up for debate. They just want to preach their way or the highway. I mean, that's pretty much it. Yeah. And generally they're anonymous accounts, um, which is really sad. And uh, th- but that's how it goes. And the thing is, is that in the modern, modern uh, social media space, I used to be happy to argue with some twit hiding behind a you know fake username in a shadow account. Um, but now what I do is I handle them very carefully. And I illustrate to all the people who are on the fence who don't know that here's a scientist who's willing to take the time to share scientific information with someone who's being absolutely abusive and horrible. Mm. And that wins me a lot of trust. And it really does show people, you know, maybe the science is on our side. Maybe the science is right. And to be honest, I think that's what's happening. I think we are showing people uh, that we that the science wins and that we are turning the ship very slowly. Now, what percentage would you say? I always like trying to figure this stuff out. And like, what percentage would you say that those accounts that are attacking you are like actual people or that they are trolls that are kind of just trying to help further the divide, whether those are, I don't know, domestically or internationally? Like, what would you say the percentages of that are? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> I, I think a lot of them are people. Um, a lot of them are folks who have interests and in organizations um, that, uh, you know, like Carrie Gillum, who goes after me the other day, who wrote the original article, who just said, he's pounding checks from Bayer. And then uh, some other folks started to harass my wife through her business's social media. I mean, it's really sad what happens. But what um, the majority of, and this is what's really cool, I think compared to maybe 10 years ago or seven years ago, um, the number of, of known people who go after me is low. Because I'm not a good target, because I will respond with kindness 
and I will give them the science hug. And the science hug is your best weapon. When someone's being awful, you come back and say, let's, why don't we have a discussion? Let's do it live and on Zoom and record it. You know, you give them that and they, they never can meet your expectations there. You know, they'll never do it. But when you offer that in real time, then you start seeing other people you've never heard of saying, well, wait a minute, why won't you talk to them? You're so sure. Go get them. Come on, let's talk. And, and, and they really start to see, again, where the science is versus these uh, online cranks where they're just to stir the pot. I mean, kind of like that old adage, you got to kill them with kindness and with scientific literacy. So I think that's huge. I mean, instead of just going up there and, you know, having a debate after debate after debate, just kind of showing them like, hey, here's the science. Here's why I formed my opinion, because these facts have a good day. I think that's really cool. And also that's really refreshing on Twitter because I feel like Twitter sometimes <laughs> gets a, a really bad rap of being like a, a boxing ground where people just want to fight 24 seven. Yeah. And, and people do gravitate towards that. I had a guy go after me the other day. I can't think of, uh, you know, I mean, he just, the guy I never heard of before. He goes after me and says, well, you're, you're not a toxicologist, so you can't evaluate this and you probably don't know statistics either. <laughs> you know? And I said, well, I would be really happy to discuss with you, you know, my qualifications and maybe your ideas about why this data is, is not, is inappropriate and why, why my points are wrong. What bothers you the most? I'd be really excited to hear what you think. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and then he just like, well, you're an idiot. And I'll go, but I really value your opinion. And I'm listening and I'd love to know more about how you interpret this. What do you think? You're a moron. You don't know any. You know. It, so it really does frame. And so what you basically do is use jujitsu. You're using this person's momentum against them. And by setting a, an example of somebody who is kind, empathetic, listening, interested, um, wanting to get to the bottom of the getting to the truth, that says to the audience who's just watching, you know, the scientist probably is right. Yeah, let's look at the one that is treating this as a fair fight. They're not throwing out insults. They have actual data to back up their claims. Let's maybe listen to what they're saying. Yeah. And so the funny part is um, behaving kindly in social media is really the way to win the fight. Mm. And uh, the science hug, um, you know, remember throwing out the golden rule. um, Don't treat people the way they want to be treated. I don't 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 treat people the way you want to be treated. Treat people the way they want to be treated. Mm. And a lot of people are in social media space trying to find the answers because they don't know. And they're concerned parents. And they just read about 80% of people having weed killer in their pee. And now they want to know the, the truth. And if I go in there and say, this idiot gets it all wrong, it turns off everybody. But if I go in and say, this is I'm a scientist who cares about farming, cares about the environment, cares about human health. And that's why it's so important to stop the misinformation in these articles. People know that that they're being bathed in misinformation. And by coming out and saying, here's my credentials, here's what's important to me, let me help you understand what they're saying. That wins big traction in today's social media environment. And I mean, in addition to those articles, you also have the Talking Biotech podcast, which I feel like the unofficial slogan should be the the scientific hug or the science hug. I, I feel yes. like that should be the unos- the unofficial um, <laughs> motto of it. Uh, give you the science hug. Yeah, it's um <laughs> the uh, so the talking biotech podcast. We're in our eighth year now, and it's been just about every Saturday for eight years. And uh, the thing I love about talking biotech is nobody ever goes after it. You don't see people uh, arguing against it. You don't see them calling me a shill for whatever. 
um, they leave that alone. And I think it's because they see educational tools as bad targets. If you start going after, um, you know, march against Monsanto, have at it, whatever. But marching against an educational podcast um, doesn't look good on them. And they really do see that. And so I think it's a testament to how we have to create our content going forward is make highbrow content that is taking the high road, no cheap shots, just beautiful information that sucks people into science. And, and that's how we win hearts and minds. That's awesome. And I mean, I, I see on your website that you guys have, have over 1.5 million plays. Like that's not an easy feat to do. That's pretty <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah, it's getting close to 2 million now. And it's about uh, about 30,000 a month, Twenty between 24 and 30,000 a month. And that's pretty staggering because when I do the podcast, um, I sit in my office at home where I'm talking to you now. And I just kind of feel like I'm talking to the microphone and this really cool guest who's got a story to tell. And I don't think about how do I maximize my numbers and am I an influencer and blah, blah, blah. No, I'm a scientist who enjoys talking about the really cool breakthroughs and getting everyone else excited about how kick-ass the future is. And it's getting here faster all the time. And I'm so psyched. I told my wife today on the way, I said, you know, I'm 55 years old. I said, I have 45 more good years of functional living <laughs> to bust my butt and do stuff. Yeah. It's only, I got 45 years left. And I said, the Talking Biotech podcast has given me hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, that's awesome. And I feel like, I don't know, a lot of people don't realize that. They think that you just need to focus on the numbers, focus on marketing, instead of just putting out great content that you're passionate about. And then kind of like that old saying again, like if you build it, they will come. And I mean, obviously you have built just this huge audience of people that want to know what's going on with biotech and science and science literacy and all that good stuff. So it's great that you've, I don't know, you've built this whole community around that. So, I mean, congratulations. Well, it's, it's really fun too, because when uh, it was kind of like last year, maybe when uh, I started looking around, like I never would look to say, well, where's my ratings this week? Where are things this week? And when you go into iTunes under life sciences and you look at the top 50, there's my stupid head right in the middle of it. <laughs> and this is like in there with BBC Science and CBS and then all these big, you know, uh, science verses and all these big podcasts that have producers and web people and special interview envoys and sound producers. And then just, you know, <laughs> stupid Kevin Fulton with his microphone. <laughs> <laughs> and he's up there. He's in the top 50. Yeah, so that, that feels pretty good. And it just means, it. what it mostly means is um, I have wonderful guests who, who tell great stories and who bring life to outstanding technologies that solve problems that people care about. And when we talk about where are we with sickle cell disease, how do we make the next generation of plastics from algae rather than petroleum? How do we treat the most aggressive cancers? How do we uh, rejigger the COVID vaccine to remove heart scar tissue or rebuild your liver um, if you have uh, liver damage? These are all stories that we cover. And the answers are not, well, someday we might get to this. It's the clinical trials are going on right now. Um, these are things that in our lifetimes, in the next five years, will be realities that will save people's lives that will make better crops for more people, that will grow crops where you couldn't grow them before. Um, this is such exciting stuff and it's coming so fast. And so the podcast gets a lot of traction just based on those kinds of metrics. I bet it does. I mean, that, that shows weekly, is that correct? 
That's right. Every Saturday morning. And, and if I don't get it out first thing Saturday morning, I got an email box full of hate mail by Saturday <laughs> afternoon. It's like, it's part of my Saturday routine. Where is it? You know, which is really kind of cool. Um, I, and I, I get, I get some nice things too, but the, I can tell it's successful by the number of people who hate when it doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that's so cool that you've built something that it's part of people's traditions. Like just their, their normal routines every Saturday morning. Like, Hey, I, I got, I, I've got a busy Saturday morning. I've got to listen to the talking biotech podcast and then I could continue on my day. But if I don't listen to it, I'm going to be pissed. That's right. Yeah. No, it's funny. Like I, I get some, like I, every day when every Saturday, when I take my dog for a walk, I listen to, and uh, I'm same thing. I mean, I listen to uh, skeptics guide to the universe and uh, sometimes ACE on the house. Those come out on Saturday morning. And if they don't come out, I notice. So I understand what that's like. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, Kevin, it's been so fun chatting with you again, talking about um, glyphosate. And I mean, you are such a phenomenal science educator. So thank you for all you do on Twitter and just, I don't know, promoting the good news of agriculture and technology and how far we've come and kind of how far we've got to go. So I appreciate you coming on in such short notice. I'm going to link your podcast and the article and everything down below in the description, but uh, thanks again. We appreciate it, man. No, my pleasure. It was really nice to talk to you again. And, um, you know, I should say, you know, you've had a lot of success with your podcast and uh, it's good to see that coming out on a regular basis and growing his audience as well, too. So congratulations. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. You know, uh, the University of Florida has got some great podcasters and educators out there. So um, good old University of Florida. I, I had a good time. I missed that place, but I I'm sure you have a good time there. I'm sure you're holding it down. Oh yeah. I, I have, I still have a good time. I mean, I, the best part for me is uh, I'm teaching more than I ever did before mm. and less research, more teaching. And that's a long story, but um, I think the students are phenomenal and I absolutely adore the students nowadays. They're so much fun and so interested in how they're going to contribute to the bigger picture and very refreshing over when I was in college and it was, you know, the Alex P Keaton, how do I step on everybody else to get ahead? Um, I, I knew so many people like that and uh, very much appreciate the students that are out there today. So we're having fun. That's awesome. Yeah. When I was in the College of Ag, I mean, the relationships you, you build with your professors are awesome because the classes are smaller. You spend so much time with them. So, I mean, I, I, I had a blast when I was there just, I mean, in the College of Ag, just learning how to be an ag teacher, learn about environmental horticulture. So, it was a good time. I highly recommend it to anybody. So, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm teaching a class for sophomores. It's a quest two course, one of these courses that everybody has to take. And it's called critical evaluation of uh, technology in medicine and agriculture. And we're talking about a lot of these topics. And more importantly, how do we think critically about new science as it comes at us fast and fast and furious and 35 students every year. And it's, I'm really looking forward to that. So spread the word. If you know someone who's a freshman nerd at the University of Florida, which there's a lot of them, have them get into my class in the fall every year. And uh, it's, it's a really good time and you'll learn a lot. And my goal is, is to make it the most memorable class you'll ever have. And I think it is. That sounds fun. You know, you'll have to email me a syllabus or something or a link for that. And I'll also put that in the description. That'll be great. Sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Deal. All right. Well, Kevin, thanks so much, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Trevor. Thanks again to Dr. Fulcher for being on the show and for you listening to this episode on glyphosate. Um, of course, if you want to learn more about this, go check out Dr. Fulcher's Twitter 
his article, and of course his podcast, Talking Biotech, which all of which will be linked in the description of this show. If you enjoyed it, if you learned a thing or two, if you maybe changed your mind on glyphosate, send us a message. Go over to us on Instagram, Facebook, wherever. And of course, sharing this episode with a friend or family member always helps us reach more and more people. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.